Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Kreisman. And I'm Ira Kreisman. And on this episode, we continue our conversation on Final Fantasy VII, the original. We're going to have to start calling it. Yeah, we are. I think this is the first time we've recorded since we have both completed the remake. So people listening to this outside of the time it's been released, you've got a little roadmap, all of our, I wonder how this is going to play out or if this will be different in the remake uh, conversations will turn into, well, that's how they did it in the remake. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, and hopefully we won't do too much of that. But when last we left our heroes, uh, we had defeated a version or a piece of Genova upon a boat, as one does. A ship, right. I suppose. I don't have my terminology. Not a boat guy. Uh, nautical terms. <laughs> my, my nautical terminology down. But uh, we were using that nautical device to arrive upon a beach. That's typically how that works. Again, really nailing, I think, uh, how this happens. Uh, just painting a picture here for the people. Uh, <laughs> Cloud and party, uh, of course, continuing their search for Sephiroth and, and answers about him and perhaps about themselves, uh, arriving at Costa del Sol. Our ship upon which we have stone away stone away comes into port and uh, we hop off yuffie immediately goes to talk to this dude in a swimsuit so you know good on her sure barrett says hey remember mingle like regular folks uh <laughs> which sort of begs a lot of questions doesn't it <laughs> yeah it does he also says it'll be nice not to wear that sailor suit uh and Aaron says oh i thought you looked cute so <laughs> So they, they ask Cloud's opinion, of course, and you can either agree that Barrett looked cute in his sailor suit or uh, let's keep our mind on Sephiroth. You better agree, by the way. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Our, our heroes sort of spread out through Costa del Sol and we get this cool music. We get to take a bit of a break before we continue our pursuit of Sephiroth. It is worth noting that there are Cessnas in this universe, so add that to the... Uh, Korean barbecue and other uh, Earth things existing in this non-Earth world. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, for what it's worth. Long before cup noodles. Right, right. Long before... And, and Coleman camping gear. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh, a helicopter comes in for a land. Rufus and Heidegger get off the boat on which we had stowed away. And they also are, uh, are in pursuit of Sephiroth. Rufus does note to Heidegger that he has heard that Cloud and the rest were on board uh, and they slipped through our hands and you done messed up, Heidegger. At which point Heidegger begins like throwing deck hands into the water and attacks some random dude just hanging out on the docks. I will say, though, it is not in any way uh, unique. Uh, this is a trope I always enjoy and I do think it's done well here. The fascist underling also being abused by the fascist who's just a little bit more above them 
and, and so whenever there's this dynamic that arises and, and you see the the person who's so full of bluster all of the time put in his place, even though it's by someone you also hate, there's there's something very schadenfreudic about that. <laughs> So, uh, Costa del Sol, let's do a quick description of this place. It's sunny, so you got a lot of uh, yellow flagstone, you know, paving the streets, and there are booze and vendors, there's some kids playing soccer. Everybody is in, like, everybody is in a swimsuit, so it's going to be hard to mingle in our, our full adventurer gear here. It's almost the polar opposite in terms of tone and color and atmosphere of Midgar. Yeah, or even, like, uh, calm. Right, which is very shingled roofs and, and smokestacks and sort of very homey, I would say. Kids run through the city uh, vibe. But yeah, this place is, is very uh, open, uh, blue skies, clean air. Costa del Sol's great, man. <laughs> there is a villa being sold for 300,000 gil. It belongs to the Shinra Corporation, so there's that. There's a tourist guide place. Mookie from the Honey Bee Inn. We didn't really talk about Mookie when we talked about the Honey Bee Inn because we kind of glossed over the Honey Bee Inn, which, speaking of the remake, we will not be able to do when we talk about the remake. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but Mookie was in the Honey Bee Inn, and that's where Cloud could get the special underwear if you took a bath with Mookie and his, his muscly buddies. Uh, and he and his friends are here in the bar in Costa del Sol, and yeah, dude really likes it here. You could walk around naked and nobody would notice. So again... There's that. It's an advantage, I suppose. Yuffie has gotten a job selling materia. There's a kid at the ocean who explains that a creepy man in a cape was signaling for us to come near. That's nice. Also at the beach, talking about the story now, Hojo. Hojo's here in his lab coat, uh, just lounging around, being attended by some uh, scantily clad young ladies. And now he finally acknowledges that he recognizes Cloud. He says, oh, it's been a long time. He says that, uh, you know, sometimes you just have to take a break. You got to get a tan. But I believe we're both after the same goal. Cloud says, you mean Sephiroth. Hojo says, did you see him? I just remembered a hypothesis. Haven't you ever had the feeling something is calling to you? Or that you had to visit a place. And oh my god, does Hojo know about Cloud's psychotic breaks? Does he know that Cloud's having these visions? Cloud, being the RPG hero, says, I will go wherever Sephiroth is to beat him and put an end to all of this. Hojo is intrigued. This could be interesting. Were you in Soldier? Would you like to be my guinea pig? Cloud is, is ready to throw down. Uh, and, and Hojo just laughs it off. And then he says to Aerith, aren't you the ancient? And Aerith is like, dude, I have a name. It's Aerith. So Aerith says, uh, hey, name, it's Aerith. Uh, and I know that I'm an ancient because my mother told me so. And he says, oh, you mean Ilfana. How is she? Dude, what a creep. Yeah, yeah. That, that, like, so if you... All right. Uh-huh. <laughs> Let's back up a step. Uh, in the original, we do not know as players in our first go-round yet how deeply evil and horrible this person is. And there are two things he does right here that are deeply disgusting that you're not going to notice 
the first time. I mean, calling somebody a guinea pig or asking someone if they want to be a guinea pig is in and of itself obviously gross and evil. So we know he's a bad guy. But Cloud has already been his guinea pig. Yeah. And how dare you let that name escape your lips? No and kidding. we'll get to that. No kidding. But, and, and you know, this is going to be interesting because as you were going through that, I was like, a lot of this in the remake, sorry it's happening, folks. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. It's this is Some of this conversation has already taken place. Um, spoilers, I guess, for the remake also, by the way. And I'm not going to say exactly when and where. But Hojo and Cloud and Aerith have kind of had, you know, the, oh, are you? In, 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 and are you? And while we know, you know, while they've done a lot of the alluding to Cloud's past, we, they, we still don't know the specific details of it yet. And so... This is, again, one of those, you know, really clever pieces of writing where they're foreshadowing and and laying the emotional groundwork for payoffs that won't happen for a long time from now. But for now, just what a creeper. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it it does kind of bother me that we can't throw down with him here because he did imprison Aerith. He did try to either kill her or impregnate her with Red. He's mm-hmm. he is not a good person. He's part of this evil empire and you know I'm not I'm not okay with just murdering dudes in the street or on the beach as it were. Right. I I think that's a pretty easy position to take. At the same time, this is a bad person. We should be doing something about him. I I'm not sure what, but just letting him hang out vaguely threaten us. Yeah, and, and we've talked about this long conversation that Final Fantasy has about the role that scientists play in creating oppression and, and fascism and empire. And, you know, Final Fantasy VI goes a different route with it and really asks us to struggle with how we feel about Sid. But it's pretty clear here that this this dude just, this dude gots to go. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I think they draw a line between real science and the, this sort of, you know, funded by the empire for the empire's ends. Like, we're, we're going to meet Sid eventually in this game. And that dude's an engineer and an astronaut. Right. And it's science for the sake of science, which is real science. This guy, I mean, it, it's like, it's the Jurassic Park line, right? You, you did this just wondering if you could not thinking whether or not you should, but even but Hojo goes even further than that, right? To knowing that he's doing this awful thing and he's doing it on purpose just because he can. To enrich himself and his friends. Right. Though whether or not he has friends is up for debate also. No. Yeah, fr- yeah friends is a strong word. His other people around him who are all f- symbiotically reliant on the power they've created for themselves. Right. So Aerith asks what I think is an extraordinarily pertinent question. She says, Is Genova an ancient? Is Sephiroth? Do we all have the same blood? Hojo does not answer the question. He just sort of mumbles about heading west because the game needs to tell us which way to go to continue the game. But I think that is extraordinarily interesting because we're going to get into it, right? The game's going to tell us, more or less, who the ancients, the Ketra, are and who Aerith and Sephiroth are in relation to them and what Genova is and whether or not Genova is an ancient. But raising that question, I think, is really important. Right. Like, I, I was sort of framing it emotionally a second ago, but from a literary framing, this is 
be aware of all of these conversations and note that the question was not answered because that's going to be important. <laughs> right, right. We've, we've talked about uh, unreliable narrator uh, in Final Fantasy's previous and in this one. But also, like, when you're getting your exposition from the bad guys, you got to be careful about how much you trust it. Or even just if you're getting right. if you're getting your exposition from characters internal to the story, as opposed to any sort of omniscient narrator, be careful about how much you trust that. I, this game, mm. so and there's someone on YouTube I, I need to remember. I think it was the Super Wolf uh, guy who did the thing about. Oh, actually, no, it might have been a Resident Arc friends about the the big wide double turn arc in this game that we're. We've talked around and obviously we'll dive deeper into once they start to happen. But the way this game gets you to trust its unreliable narrators is just mwah, ah, brilliance, especially by having one of them be the main character of the game. Right. Yeah, you trust him because he knows things, but some things maybe he doesn't know. Yeah. So you take, uh, take a rest at the inn, as one does in JRPGs. Barrett is in the bathroom with the sailor suit on, uh, looking in the mirror, making muscles at himself. Yeah, maybe I don't look so bad. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe this is okay. And then uh, the line is, cradled by the sound of the ocean, sweet dreams. Wow. That's nice, <laughs> given about what's, <laughs> what's about to happen. Yeah. If you leave town and head west, the, the gold saucer rises from the horizon. It's this uh, pair of giant towers with some saucer shapes sort of attached to them, sort of branching off from these, these pointy towers. You can't get there because you can't go through, uh, you can't ford the river. And also it's surrounded by this desert and the desert is bordered by quicksand. But again, they're just filling your mind with wonder at every step of the way. Like you, it immediately begs the question, What's that? How do we get there? What do we do when we get? Can we visit that place? And and the answer to that question is yes, <laughs> but but not yeah. yet. <laughs> yeah. Instead, you have to go up this mountain pass. Uh, somebody wondered out loud if you talk to them uh, whether or not Doctor Hojo had gone to Mount Coral, which he did. You go up uh, a mountain pass. There's an old guy here who says, "Oh, I just passed a guy in a black cape. Uh, I tried to tell him it's dangerous up ahead, and he ignored me." And I, I have to speculate here. You know, we're supposed to be following Sephiroth. And to be clear, Sephiroth doesn't wear a cape. He wears this black, long black jacket. I am beginning to wonder, you know, I, or I was beginning to wonder, assuming my memory is correct, that we are being deliberately led about. Uh, we as players are, are kind of being railroaded onto the storyline. But at the same time, I think that parallels uh, that our heroes are being led about by somebody, some force, something. Something is trying to make sure that we don't forget to follow Sephiroth. So you're suggesting that there's some sort of hooded figure of fate pushing us down a linear Me. path of destiny. Yeah. In the original game. In the yeah, original in, game. Yeah. yeah. Huh. How about hmm. that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, so we so we do right. We are JRPG heroes. We're going to follow the bad guy. We're going to take care of things. And I talked an episode or two ago about how some of these pre-rendered backgrounds are extraordinarily pretty, even though Cloud is is a blocky character model, uh, sort of clunking around these beautiful scenes. It is it's something to look at even now. 
there's this rocky path and thick trees and and the sunset is just right you like climb up this hill and the characters disappear over it there's one scene where there's like a lens flare as though it were actually being shot by a real camera yeah. it's really gorgeous they are masters of visual storytelling in addition to everything else and always have been and that's why it's important for them to put you know some people see it as flash rather than substance sure. uh, and i i don't think those two things can be separated quite so easily and i, I think this franchise is one that's uh, always done a really good job of using the advancements in technology and their desire to make things big and bold and grandeur and and to take your breath away but to do it for a reason to do it for a reason that impacts the story that makes the player feel about entering a place like that the way the characters would feel about entering a place like that but by making it that beautiful it's like we talked about diegetic music before about how that can bring you into the world if you and the character are listening to the exact same piece of music and it's the same thing with making a, a place even one that's two-dimensional and still like this, uh, that gorgeous. And so to emphasize that, uh, after all this beautiful, gorgeous scenery, we find ourselves a reactor deep in the mountains. So here's another Mako reactor pumping the energy of the planet uh, to the surface so that uh, we can have our modern conveniences. You can't go into this reactor uh, yet, so we take the uh, route down to an old train bridge and there's uh, there's a bunch of like you have to follow these mine carts and uh, it's like a giant roller coaster and, and there's this mini game where you have to make yourself fall and then you have to like move to get the items uh, and then you catch on to the to the trellis that holds up the mine cart rails and climb back up. So you know another mini game. Also a little reminder it reminds me a little bit of the uh, Underground Railroad and Vector were in you escape. Oh, and there's sure. also a little like underground cart, though, handled by monster creatures in uh, Final Fantasy IX. Uh, all of the, those environments seem like sort of cousins to me. There's a spot here where you can hear some birds chirping. And if you investigate, you can climb up to find some chicks in a bird nest. And yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a treasure here, which you can take or not. This, to me, was always a fun, silly little thing. But I was watching a video of a streamer, and I can't remember which one now. And this gal was just having the most emotional time trying to take care of these chicks. And I, I realized if you approach it that way, it could actually be a pretty powerful little, like, tiny little story about family. Right. And uh, what happens when you mess with, you know, livelihoods? or babies, or or just life in general. Like, you can interfere. You can, but then are you responsible? That's up to you, I guess. And, right, there, there, and there's even a, a parallel to be made about Cloud and Sephiroth and Zack and other people in the soldier program and taking people in their youth and programming them, sometimes quite literally scientifically in their DNA, to, to be a certain way. So there's like a whole, like, like the whole game is told in this tiny little, like taking eggs from a mother and doing this thing to, is terrible and it's bad and you shouldn't do that to someone's baby. So, so leave the treasure is what you're saying. Yeah. Leave the treasure. So, so don't pursue money over lives, perhaps. 
could be I don't might know, be could a be a theme of fun. Yeah, I don't could know. be. All right. So th- there's another thing I want to mention here. There's a cave with an old uh, bulldozer in here. And there, I think there's a dude living here just with his old bulldozer because Coral used to be this famous coal mining town. And, and now that the uh, reactor's been here the last four or five years, uh, I'm out of work. Me and my bulldozer, we're out of work. There's another entire metaphor in debate in uh-huh. like one moment. <laughs> just hey, like... Drew. Drew. Keep your damn politics out of my games, Drew. Keep them out of my games, Drew. <laughs> right. right, an energy worker out of work because of a new form of energy. And <laughs> right. Oh, oops. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and it's worth yeah. thinking about when you make technological advances, who are we harming and what can we do to, you know, take care of the baby chicks? Or, or yeah. are we responsible? I think we are as a society, but what does Final Fantasy VII say? I think it's pretty clear as well. But... <laughs> So we get some more really pretty shots. There's a big rope bridge. There's no fight with Gilgamesh, but there's this big rope bridge. And and eventually we get to the town of North Coral. So North Coral is the definition of a shantytown. There are tents everywhere, there's junk everywhere, not cast off from the people who live here, you understand, but cast off from the, the upper class, the, the, the industrial pursuits of, of the corporate empire that is Shinra. It is dusty. Uh, there are people living here, but they're just sort of eking out an existence. And the first thing that happens is some dude comes up and punches Bear right on his face. Which you think yeah. might yeah. trigger uh, a battle music, but no. No, it does not. And he says, uh, looky here, never thought I'd see your face again. They kick you out of another town or something. You destroy everything you touch. Wow. Yeah. So, in both this game up to this point... And in the remake, really, we haven't gotten much about Barrett's past. In the remake, we've gotten, I think, a deeper look at his motivations, sure. which is is kind of like understanding a person's past. But still, there's nothing that would that's happened in the remake to to <laughs> the point uh, that's been made that would give us an indication that somebody would would feel this way about Barrett. So it, this is just kind of one of those. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. what? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> clearly there's a story there right and and for all that he's gruff and for all that he's you know advocating violence against the empire uh you know and and depending on what you think of of that he he's clearly a hero he's the papa bear of this group to see somebody who's not associated with the empire who's not associated with shinra look at him as a villain is just it shakes everything up again and I'll even go a step further. To any one of our Final Fantasy heroes throughout the years who haven't been introduced as kind of roguish, 
like a cane or whatever, you're like, oh man, he's had issues. You would see why, you know, whatever. Uh, or shadow. Sure. Introduced yeah. as a guy with some issues. Uh, so if someone out there was like, no, not him, and was scared when you walked into town with shadow, you'd be like, no, I get it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but usually in, in, in Final Fantasy games, and I would say probably in f most stories, that character arc goes that one direction, not the band, uh, <laughs> so, uh -huh. right? They, 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 and their rougher edges get sort of smoothed out. Uh, but to ha yeah, have somebody introduce and and of course Barrett now of course he's introduced with some rough edges, but unequivocally as a we've talked about him as a moral center of the team as a leader and especially by this point in the game. Uh, so it's just I think it's just shocking among all of our Final Fantasy heroes to just see an NPC slap him on the face and say, how dare you? <laughs> My goodness. So so from these people, we get that they think it is all Barrett's fault that uh, North, North Coral has turned into a garbage heap. And Barrett just apologizes. Like, Barrett got punched in the face, and he is apologizing. Yeah. The assaulters leave. The people of this place leave, and Barrett says, yeah, it is all my fault this town was destroyed, and he, he takes off. So you can, you can look around. There's not a lot here. You can, you know, stimulate the local economy, I guess, and, and buy some stuff from the, from the item shop. But uh, really all there is to do here is find out that people don't like Barrett here and to go to the train station. There's a sort of trolley uh, gondola kind of thing that's going to take you to the next place but you can you stop here at this train station uh where barrett is you know waiting to go on to the next place and Aerith says barrett what happened so he explains my hometown used to be around here it's not here anymore it got buried in just the past four years and then we get a flashback in this game no <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a there's a lot about memory in this game it might be a running theme so in the flashback, Coral's here, and, and it's simple, but it's not run down. It's, it's a small town. It's still kind of dusty, but it's not a slum. It's not a junkyard. And Barrett explains, Coral has, had always been a coal mining town. It was dusty and was poor, but it was calm. It was a real small town. And then, for the first time, I heard about a Mako reactor. And they're all gathered in this in this room. It's like a council meeting or, or like the, the village elders. And the headman says, what are we going to do? Uh, the only one opposed to this is Dine. And Dine, now we're introduced to a new character. You know, coal miner, so kind of kind of a skinny dude, but uh, clearly well-muscled, uh, dark hair. White dude, because everybody in this game but Barrett's white. Except maybe uh, <laughs> rude, I guess, based upon the remake. Yeah, and and I suppose you could argue that several of the characters are more Asian, like sure, fair and, uh, But yeah, beyond that, and he, even Cloud has. But yeah, <laughs> correct. The point being that Dine is says yes, I am definitely against this. There's nothing to talk about if you're thinking of throwing away our coal. It's been ours for generations. Our fathers and theirs before risked their lives for it. We don't even have the right to throw it all away. Which would suggest, and I think this is very interesting, that the coal mines are owned by the town. They're not owned by a, a corporation. They're, they're owned by, you know, the, 
that the shareholders are the villagers here, which kind of a collective. Yeah, which is really cool, especially in a world here where everything seems to be owned or run or at least intimidated by this giant corporation. And then Barrett speaks up in this flashback. And before I, I tell you what he says, it's worth noting that in the flashback, Barrett has two human hands. Yeah, it's a nice trick to pull off. Yeah, they don't say anything about it, right? Just Barrett has two human hands. So he says, Dine, nobody uses coal nowadays anyway. It's a sign of the times. So progress, right? And hey, you know what? Coal causes its own problems. Greenhouse gases, health concerns. I imagine people who live near a coal mine, uh, a lot of them have asthma, right? Like there, right. there could be a lot of benefits to going along with this energy company that's coming that says, hey, we got this clean energy. Like that, that is absolutely tempting. I totally get it. Absolutely, yeah. Another person in this meeting is somebody we've met in this game but haven't had a lot of interactions with, and her name is Scarlet. She's this tall, statuesque, blonde woman, always wearing a red dress. And she says, yes, everything is Mako now. Shinra will guarantee your livelihood once the Mako reactor is completed. And I think we need to always be careful when giant imperialistic corporations <laughs> tell, yeah. us tell us they're going to take care of us. Yeah, right. And it guarantees like that should always be looked at sideways. Right. Uh, and Barrett says, you know, I don't want my wife to suffer anymore. Her name is Myrna. I don't want Myrna to suffer anymore. Dine, however, refuses to give in. He understands, but he's not going to give up the only thing they have. Like, it'd be worth, it, it's worth noting, like, this is the resource of the town. This is their only bargaining chip. This is their only leverage, and they're going to give it up. Yeah. So, basically, Dine is outvoted. And Barrett explains that's how the coral reactor was built. We all thought it would bring us an easier life. But then... When Dine and I were out of town, Coral was burned by the Shinra troops. All the townspeople, all my relatives, everyone, everything, burned to the ground. He explains there was an explosion at the reactor. Shinra blamed the accident on the people, said it was done by a rebel faction. More than Shinra, I can't forgive myself. I never should have gone along with the building of that reactor. And, dude, I gotta say, if you guys had not given in, they'd have come in with their troops anyway. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, this happens in real life, right? There are stories about, stories, there are instances of corporations going into areas with hired guns and getting what they want anyway. In fact, um, you know, we, we do this podcast, we in Colorado our whole lives and uh, there was a massacre in a town called Ludlow. It's called the Ludlow Massacre. Look it up if you're not familiar with it. And literally the, the police were called in to kill men, women, and children who were protesting for higher pay in mines. I mean, it's literally this story in the real world uh, and they came in and killed people so that they could get their way and force them to work under certain circumstances and conditions. And so if the, if the need had been, we're building a different reactor or whatever, there's just a slightly different need and that's all that it is. So Tifa 
takes the position I just uh, basically uh, stated, that uh, we were all fooled by the promises uh, of Shinra back in those days. And, and Barrett explains, this is why I am so angry. They took advantage of us. They killed my wife. So there's a guy, the, the guy running the gondola decides now would be a, a fantastic time to break in. <laughs> he says, so uh, the, the train, the trolley, the gondola thing here is, is leaving soon. So if you want to go to the gold saucer, hurry up and get on. Barrett says, Dine was my best friend. We were close ever since we were kids. And then he gets on the gondola. And, and Tifa explains that she didn't know anything about this. This is the first she's hearing of it. And Yuffie, uh, an episode or two ago, I said that Yuffie does not have a lot of patience for nuance. Yuffie says Barrett never should have trusted Shinra. And that's it. She just gets on the thing. Like, no sympathy for any of this. Yeah, which shows you another ugly side of tribalism out of one of our heroes. And you can understand a little bit because she's from Wutai. Yes. And... They fought a war. Yes, recently, um, in her lifetime. Very right, right. She's in Crisis Core, so yeah. And and it's it's again another really nuanced take. And I think one of the things that Final Fantasy games does really well is present us with these heroes that we love, and it makes it easier to see a critique of something like that a little softer. To go, oh, I can understand how she would feel that way. But she really should be better to her friend in that moment. But her tribalism won't let her be right now. Right. So, speaking of tonal shifts. Yeah, from from Costa del Sol to the dying story to... The gold saucer is quite the trip. Yeah, but I like, like we were talking about with the visuals earlier. I think presenting that dichotomy is interesting and important, right? So beautiful pre-rendered backgrounds of mountains and trees and pathways and sunsets uh, versus the steel sky and the smog, or I guess it's not smog in, in uh, Midgar, but it's Mako haze. I don't yeah. know what it's Yeah, yeah, and, but and, and the dust and the poverty there, right? So drawing those distinctions, uh, showing us a dichotomy of images is important. And so also a dichotomy between musical pieces. We, here we're about to leave North Coral, this, this really poor place, and we're going to the Golden Saucer. Uh, so the Gold Saucer is literally a pair of golden towers with these uh, golden saucer structures hanging off of it. And it's a metaphor for, you know, bread and circuses, right? It's the, it's the entertainment, it's the distraction. It is a, a glut of wealth. And not so far away are, are these people living in this slum. It's, it's almost a waste of all that energy and, and money and resources and food. And, and you know what, there's nothing wrong with entertainment, right? That's, that's not my critique. My critique is when we have so much and yet we deliberately like step over the homeless people. Right. And and so on the one hand, I love the gold saucer. The gold saucer is awesome. And it's been reiterated in Final Fantasy XIV, right? And it, it's this really cool place, but at the same time, it's a metaphor for uh, what we do when we have too much money 
and what we don't do with it is help people. Yeah, and and like Midgar and its two-plated system, this rises up above. Yep. So the the halves are literally up above or on top of looking down on the have-nots. Yeah, and uh, like you said, and, and I think it's very purposefully meant to be like a Las Vegas mm-hmm. type of situation. Yeah. It's very easy to draw that parallel in all the fun ways. Like you said, it's fun to be there. It's easy to get sucked in. It's purposefully difficult to leave. Uh <laughs> Very easy to spend all of your resources and just get totally off track with whatever it is that you were doing before you went there. But just like Vegas in in the real world, like you said, there's like a lot of poverty just right around all of that like extraordinary wealth. It's like they're firing off the water fountains that dance and, you know, five blocks away, people are really hurting and it's tough to shake that. Maybe shouldn't be it shouldn't be shouldn't be shook. It should be fixed. Right, right. And and I think there's a I'm going to draw an interesting parallel. What I think is an interesting parallel. Um, I'll let you know. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so, in casinos are deliberately built to help you lose track of time. There are no clocks, no windows, and something that you see in some video games now, especially in Final Fantasy XIV, is they put a real world clock on the screen for you which I really appreciate because yeah. it's really easy for me to lose uh, several hours in a game like that if I'm not careful. Uh, what are those games? Civilization, right? Or SimCity yeah. or Age of Empires. Like if the sun goes down and there's like no clock in that game, no real world clock in that game, I can lose hours, man. Oh, yeah. They gave out Civ Six for free and I played it till like 4 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, right? <laughs> So I really appreciate that Final Fantasy XIV deliberately does not do that. And I think yeah. there's a, a slightly different culture in video gaming uh, in Japan that is a certain amount. Remember when the Nintendo Wii came out and every once in a while it would stop and say, you sure you want to keep playing? Maybe you need to go outside. Maybe you need to take a break. Right. I think there's a difference in culture there that uh, is interesting to note, if nothing else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And... Uh... Yeah, and then, of course, the opposite of that is true here in this OG game where you're just right. like, nope, disappear into the gold saucer. And it's so easy. And again, because we had never seen anything like this in a video game before, not even close. If you hadn't been blown away by Final Fantasy VII to this point, um, and I do know that there are some people who talk about this as kind of their big holy crap moment. And I get it because in the immortal words of the American, well, not American, I think she's... Barcelona, uh, I don't know where she's from, but Rihanna, all of the lights, yeah. all of the lights. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, she's from Barbados or something. No, it doesn't matter. I just want to make sure. I... <laughs> <laughs> right. it, it, look it up when we're done. Cut in. Tell us where she's from because yeah. <laughs> we want to get things right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, I was right. She's from Barbados. And no, I have no idea how that information got in my head. So the Gold Saucer. The Gold Saucer is this big entertainment complex. Uh, it has its own currency, right? And you don't spend gil here. I mean, I don't think you ever spend gil here, but there are things you can do to earn GP, which I assume stands for Gold Saucer points. But like this is its own micronation in a way. I wonder, I don't think we ever get a, a distinct explanation of the relationship Gold Saucer has with Shinra Corporation, 
but it's also it's almost like a micronation within this empire, which is fascinating. And again, real. Back to the coal miners in Ludlow, one of the things was they could only get paid in money that they could spend at the company store. That's mm-hmm. a very real world thing. And there are things like that now where like the, like Walmart has gotten in trouble for, for this of like where they basically pay people so little, but then they justify it by giving them big discounts at Walmart so that like, okay, well, you can afford to live, but only if you shop at Walmart. <laughs> yeah. Oof. It's Yeah. So, so again, like it may seem like, oh, they've just got a, a different currency here. That's kind of a fun way of changing things up and making the gameplay a little bit diverse. No, it's also a commentary on control and power and how to use money to do that to people. So uh, the gondola emerges from the mouth of a giant pink moogle. I think it's supposed to be a moogle. Uh, right, so already they're, they're blinding us with spectacle. And uh, y'all get out of the gondola, you start to figure out how the gold saucer works. Uh, there's the, this is the station area. You go into this little, it's almost a platform kind of thing and there are a bunch of slides. Like it's really wild how you get from area to area. You always you like go through a tunnel or down a slide or I guess up elevators. It's, it's different in each one. <laughs> right. Uh, and there, so there are each, uh, there, there are these different squares. So there's the event square and the speed square and the round square which I always thought was hilarious. And the ghost and the battle and the wonder and the chocobo squares, right? So there are all these different areas uh, that have their own themes and you can do the do whatever things there are there, right? So this the scene that comes up next is strange to me because Aerith is excited. She's like, oh, I want to go do everything and I get it. Uh, but she also tries to get Barrett to cheer up. And I don't quite understand that. Like I, I, I feel like she's trying to take care of him, but also this feels kind of callous. Uh, and eventually he says, so go play, mess around all you want. Don't forget what we're doing. We're after Sephiroth. And he leaves. Yeah. Um, I have found in my life that oftentimes even the kindest of people with the most earnest of intentions can still have trouble knowing how to comfort a person when they're in need. And, and... Aerith obviously can do that a lot of the times, but I actually think there's something interesting about showing her not being perfect at that, even though you would maybe expect her to be among the most sensitive in the group. Um, A lot of people I have found, very good people in my life, have thought they were doing me a favor by telling me to cheer up when really not what I needed to hear at that moment. So I'm just going to run through real quick what all the squares are, and then we'll we'll talk about the story bits that happen next. Uh, so there's the the speed square, uh, which has this uh, roller coaster shooting thing game mini game. So you, you ride on this roller, yeah, you, you ride on this roller coaster, and you have a, a little uh, targeting square, and you you shoot the gun, and you it's really weird and trippy too. You're shooting ghosts and airplanes and submarines and cactuses and stars and spaceships and UFOs, it's weird and wild, and, and you get a score, and then you get a prize. Um, it's going to be one step away from a literal acid trip in the remake, and I can't wait. Yeah, yeah. The, it's one step away from that in the, in the OG. I don't even know why. It's, it's, well, it's just going to be brighter. Yeah, yeah. It's so wild, and it's hard, too. That is a difficult minigame. 
Yeah. <laughs> there's the Wonder Square where there's a whole bunch of mini games. Like that's where the the basketball mini game and the bike and the Mog House and the the submarine and the snowboarding and all that are. The Chocobo Square is where uh, you can race choco. You can bet on Chocobo races, and also once you learn how to race Chocobos, you can race Chocobos. The Ghost Square is where the hotel is. It's just a haunted ha- a haunted house hotel. So there's that. There's the Battle Square where you can do the arena stuff. Uh, I may have missed one, but that that's basically the the ideas. There are all these different themed things, and mostly it's mini games. Which I should say, there's just so many meta conversations to have here. But we we have to point out, and we did talk about the fair and Chrono Trigger, and and try mm-hmm. to give it as much credit as we could for innovating in this realm. But this is again in video gaming the idea that all of a sudden you could be given six different ways to play the game. And if all of a sudden you just want to be a chocobo razor and writer, then that is your game now. In 1997, that was revolutionary. You could distract yourself with the Chrono Trigger mini games for an hour or two. And two hours would be stretching. Sure. You can pl- you can master every mini game in Chrono Trigger at that fair. But you can literally spend hours upon hours to this day mm-hmm. at the OG Gold Saucer. Mm-hmm. And that was an early revolution in open world gaming. So our heroes meet Dio. Dio is the owner of the Gold Saucer. Uh, and therefore, I think, like the de facto king of the Gold Saucer. You can have a brief conversation with him. He's a muscly dude in a Speedo. He seems to have a foghorn, leghorn kind of voice because it's uh, boy, I say boy. And Cloud's like, my name is Cloud. Don't call me boy. Which I agree with. <laughs> Don't call me bro. Yeah. So uh, he mentions uh, Black Materia. This is the first time we've heard of Black Materia. Uh, mentions a man in a black cape with a tattoo of one on his hand. On his hand, not his shoulder, as, uh, mm. as Advent children might lead us to believe. And basically, he's just here right now to explain who he is and also that there are people in black capes with tattoos and that basically you're still on the right track of following Sephiroth. You can also meet in the Wonder Square. The first time you go to the Wonder Square, there's this giant Moogle with a little cat riding on top. And so far, the only sapient beings we have met are human. Or maybe some of these mutant-y things that you fight in the, uh, in the slums and such. But those things seem to have been human at one point. So anyway... And Red 13. And, right. and Red 13, yes. Thank you. Thank you for correcting me on that, because that would be a big well, mistake. <laughs> it, w- it would be, but it's also, to your point, notably the only one of its kind, as far as we know. Right. And has been introduced as such, so, yeah. So there's this giant fuzzy white Moogle, and riding upon it is a little cat. <laughs> and it approaches...
Okay, excellent. With, with a megaphone. With a megaphone. <laughs> and the cat, because the cat is the one that's sapient here, seems to be controlling the Moogle, or ordering the Moogle around, I guess. Uh, says, want me to read your fortune? A bright future, a happy future. I'm a fortune-telling machine. So, on the one hand, okay, machine, not a uh, sapient being, though I guess machines can be sapient in, in sci-fi and fantasy. And, and also promising a bright, happy future, which uh, parallels some of our destiny themes we've talked about in Final Fantasy before. Yeah. So there's that. Also, a bit suspicious to be approached by a person out of nowhere. In any case, you can name this character, which means they're going to join your party. This character is named Kayat Sith, or uh, if we're approaching it from the Irish Gaelic origins, Ket She. A Ket She is a cat fairy, essentially. C in the Irish Gaelic being spelled S I D H E because Gaelic uses completely different phonics, well, largely right. different phonics from uh, from our English. Uh, and She being uh, the fae folk or the fairies or referring to fairy mounds. If you think about the word Banshee. Ben or Ben or Ban meaning woman, so Banshee means woman of the fairies or woman of the fairy mounds. So along those lines, that's why Kayat Sith is is a cat, you know, based upon certain Irish, Scottish, Gaelic legends. So it's just this little black and black cat with a white mark on its chest, which is true to the uh, the folklore. Maybe slightly mischievous, maybe not uh, entirely trustworthy. And, and asks if, uh, you know, he can tell your future uh, and tells a few odd futures. You, you agree, right? Because you're, we're being pushed down this particular storyline. But, uh, you know, your lucky color is blue, for example. That's one of the goofy fortunes Kayat Sith gives our heroes. But on the third try, Kayat Sith says, What you pursue will be yours, but you will lose something dear. Yeah, talking about begging some questions. What? Yeah. There's a lot of... I don't know if we can or should get into it now or later. (laughs) Um, With Ketchy, Kate Sith, are we going to decide on one? I think most people say Kate Sith. uh, I think that's right. And that's fine. We'll find out. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on with this character and I, I also know that it's one that a lot of the fan base really doesn't like and obviously you know they're, they're fans of Kate Sith out there it's an unusual concept even in Final Fantasy and it, it, it's tough to, to get your mind totally around in, in the original game all of like how would it know this or, or he if you if you want the you know if you're thinking spoiler land know that if that's what's going on or what is the magic of it and yeah the twists and turns with this character and the fact that it's this big weird toy looking thing and it is like I don't know if haphazardly introduced but very suddenly right introduced yeah. there is some JRPG nonsense uh, in in this character suddenly joining up there is it's one of those like when you look at the party all the pictures of this iconic party and the silhouettes and you see the big moogle and cat and you're like like it fits now because we've all made it fit <laughs> like right and and you you can't take it out and i'm glad they're not right you know but 
it's well, but but why would it's they? It's weird. I don't have the. Yeah. Go why, why would our heroes trust this fairy right. cat on the back of a giant toy? Like, because what happens next is Kate Sith says, "You know, being a fortune teller, this is really going to bug me. If I don't see how it turns out, I'll never be able to relax. So I'm coming with you, no matter what you say." And then joins the party. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you would think they'd be a little bit more weary. And maybe because it's a whimsical character. And, you know, we the player might go, ooh, a fun cat Moogle. Moogles can't be bad guys. Right. Yeah. You know, they're, maybe they're playing on sort of our expectations of cutesy things. But yeah, and, and maybe that's what, you know, the characters are doing as well. But it is... It's all a bit unusual. Every time Kate Sith gets involved in the story... It's like, huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I will, you know, we want to be careful about referencing the remake and remakes too much, but I do wonder how we're going to justify allowing Kaya Sith to join the party. Yeah. And, and even how long they'll, you know, try to hold off on the reveal. But it's because we've seen him. In Midgar. That's one thing I've seen a lot of people complaining about the remake. Like, that totally didn't make sense to any new players. Like, well, we'll find out eventually. Yeah, that, that's fine. Um, that is, that's just a... Yeah. That's just what happens. Breadcrumbs. That's, that's fine. Yeah. I, I do think it's odd. I do think it could have been better done, and, and hopefully it will be better done. Uh, you know, Kate Sith gaining the trust of our heroes enough to, to warrant going with them into what comes next. So our heroes happen upon uh, a massacre. Uh, we get that ominous music, uh, and and we come upon an area where uh, a bunch of Shinra troops have been gunned down. And at first they're like, oh, would Sephiroth do this? And Cloud says, no, no, no. Sephiroth doesn't use a gun. There's a dude who, who escaped this massacre hiding behind a, a counter, and he explains, a man with a gun on his arm came in here and did this. And then we're all like, what? Yeah, because Barrett's not with us right now. And we don't want to suspect Barrett of, of just, you know, killing people. On the other hand, there's Shinra troops, so maybe they picked a fight first. We've killed plenty of Shinra troops. And how many people in the world? Right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Dio shows up, the, uh, the owner of the Gold Saucer, uh, and basically arrests the party, Ch- chases them into a... Uh, part of the arena in the uh, in the battle square and grabs them with robots and takes them to this uh, pit, basically a hole in the floor, not unlike what Don Cornero had in his messed up mansion. And I th- actually think this is really funny. There's an inscription around the perimeter of the pit that says gateway to heaven. <laughs> oh man. So yeah, there's a, there's that like being arrested by the owner of the Bellagio. Right. Right. Well, (laughs) actually, I think it's even weirder than that because because you can get arrested in Las Vegas, right? I imagine it happens a lot, and and then taken to say a Las Las Vegas, you know, a a county run facility. But this would be like going to the Bellagio or Disney World or something, getting arrested by the head of the Bellagio, and then thrown in the Bellagio's prison, right? The the Bellagio doesn't have a prison. Disney World doesn't have a prison. I do wonder like though. Mickey Mouse just hauling your ass inside <laughs> right, the castle. Just, right. Uh, but <laughs> like, what is happening? I, I wonder if if you were on a cruise ship, and you committed a crime, are there police oh. on a cruise ship? Is there a is there a prison on a cruise ship? I 
I bet there are, but I don't know. I don't know either. I Things are crazy. Don't go on a cruise. No kidding. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and again, just showing the amount of power that the rich and connected have in this world. They can arrest private citizens on the belief that they've done something wrong. I wonder if when you go to when you go to the gold saucer and you buy your ticket, I wonder if there's some uh, a bit of a contract you're signing about if I break X, Y, and Z laws, I agree to be... That'd be interesting. Sure. Yeah. So you find yourself in Coral Prison, which is basically the slum directly underneath Gold Saucer, surrounded by quicksand. Remember, we described this desert already. And Barrett's here. And Barrett explains that he has something to deal with and, and, you know, stay back. I don't want you to get involved in this. And and we get another. You you basically follow him to this little uh, house, and we realize, oh, this is the building from that flashback. And Barrett says, "I don't want you to get involved." And Eris says, "You know what? That's Cloud's line. It's too dangerous. I don't want you involved." <laughs> we are your friends. Like everybody gets in on it, right? We are your friends. We are going to help you with this. And I got to say, I really appreciate something you tweeted out on the Final Fantasy podcast Twitter account recently. We fight as a party, right? We don't do this alone. Man, I can't wait for Brianna White to give that speech. That's all I'm saying. She's such a phenomenal (laughs) voice actress. (laughs) And I I, I can't wait for her to to get to give that one. And maybe now she can throw the word shit in there, too. (laughs) (laughs) So we're treated to another flashback. Barrett explains that there's another man with a gun grafted onto his arm. He said that while he and Dine were out of town, the, the village was attacked by Shinra troops. And so in this flashback, uh, an old man is, is running out of town, and he, he shouts at Baird and Dine, you know, Shinra troops were being attacked, and then he's shot in the back and killed. Uh. Yeah. Barrett, still no gun on his arm, uh, and Dine, they, tr- they run off to this sort of... Uh, cliff type area to try to get away and Scarlet's here remember Scarlet was in on this uh, and she's mocking the uh, Shinra troops for having poor aim and Dine slips and nearly falls off the cliff and Barrett catches him and it's that thing that we see a lot in Final Fantasy and uh, especially in Final Fantasy 7 and especially in the Final Fantasy 7 remake of somebody falling and somebody else reaching down and grabbing him by the hand yeah. which is has just become a, a, a beautiful trope in Final Fantasy now I'm really glad you highlighted it because I saw a video analysis where somebody was highly critical of how often that happened and said, look, I like the visual, but what is this even adding? I was like, theme. It's adding theme. Yeah. Is, we catch each is other. what's being added. Right? We, we yes. protect each other. We do not let each other fall without at least trying to help. That's right. So Barrett catches Dine, and then they, they shoot at them, and they sh- basically shoot their the clasped hands of Barrett and Dine you know, destroying their hands. So Barrett's right hand and Dine's left. What an image. God, speaking of, can't wait to see how they do that in the remake. God. And Barrett explains that, uh, you know, when I got this gun grafted onto my arm, the doctor told me that there was another person who got the same operation. Which would suggest that Dine is alive. And Barrett says, I have to apologize before I can, before I can rest. And he says he's got to do it alone, and they say, no, we're going with you, because that's how we do things. Right. So uh, we go out to 
where Dine is. You know, we, we follow the clues of, you know, the boss is in a bad mood. Uh, and there's a one-on-one -on -one fight between Barrett and Dine. It's, it's a, you know, you go to the battle screen and you have to fight. You just power up Barrett so that you can take care of it. Uh, and we get this conversation between them. Barrett says, Dine, is that you? And he says, now that is a voice I haven't heard in years. Well, that's a name I've not heard. Yes, indeed. No. So Dine says, I can hear her voice, Eleanor, Eleanor being Dine's wife. He says, she's begging me not to hate your guts. And Barrett is still taking responsibility for this decision that one, everybody else in the village also made, and two, seemed like the correct decision based upon the evidence provided. But he's still apologizing. He says, I know, I know it was stupid and I'm not asking you to forgive me, but why are you killing people who, don't, uh, who aren't involved? And Dine basically gives the Kefka answer. He says, you know, wh what do you care? You think the dead care about whys? I don't care about reasons. I want to destroy everything. I want to destroy the people in the city. I want to destroy the city itself, the whole world. I've got nothing left. Everybody's dead. And Barrett says, Marlene's still alive. I found her. She's in Midgar. We could go see her together. And this is where Dine really goes off the deep end. And this is where the fight starts. He says, well, then I guess we got to fight because Eleanor's all by herself and I've got to take Marlene to, to see her, which would suggest that he's prepared to kill Marlene, four to five-year-old little girl who he is the biological father of. And Barrett's like, um, excuse me, what now? <laughs> yeah, this guy is clearly snapped. Yeah. Like, gone totally like the wiring isn't there yeah he, he is broken uh it's perhaps uh understandable to some degree but not that understandable yeah uh, a lot of people lost a lot like you said and and barrett has lost a lot and you know you can argue he didn't respond to it the best but you know this takes us back to our original conversation about blowing up the reactors and the culpability of avalanche and does barrett take it too far and does he need to rein it in and learn certain lessons but then you know you see the madness that this can drive some people to and it makes you think well actually some of barrett's reaction was in a way restrained and there's probably a lesson. There is a lesson to be learned there as well. Barrett and Dine fight uh, because we are the heroes. Barrett wins, and Dine says, "How old was Marlene back then? Even if I did go to see her, she wouldn't know me. My hands are too stained." And he tosses a, a pendant to Marlene. And pendants uh, are definitely a action adventure hero trope, right? It's a. And he explains this was Eleanor's. It's a. It's a memento. And then he, he backs up to the cliff and just sort of slips off. And Barrett, yeah. uh, Barrett says, you know, my hands aren't any cleaner. I should not carry Marlene either. So he's uh, still dealing with his thing too. Yeah, that doesn't exactly bring closure. So in order to escape the Disney gulag, you have to learn how to race chocobos. You, 
you talk to the guy in charge and he explains the rules and uh, a woman in a pink dress named Esther offers to be your manager and, and gives you basically the tutorial for the minigame about how to ride chocobos and win the chocobo race. It's worth noting that the Ramu materia is just sitting here in the waiting room, so you can get that. Hanging out. And then once you win the chocobo race, Dio, in his infinite mercy, I guess, grants you a pardon by tweet. I mean by letter. Hearing about <laughs> Dine's death, uh, he, he grants you a pardon for the death of those Shinra soldiers and gives you the buggy, which is basically the first overworld uh, vehicle you get in this game. So the overworld is slowly opening up, right? Before you couldn't go over deserts and rivers, with the buggy you can. So that sort of parallels you know, other Final Fantasies we've seen where the, the world map slowly opens up, especially Final Fantasy III. And then because we have to tell you where to go next, he says, oh, P.S., I met Sephiroth. I'm sure he's very popular with all the boys your age. And he was headed toward Gongaga, south of the river. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who has reached out to us. Let us know what we missed, omitted, or got wrong. You can email us or find us on Twitter at FFWeeklyPod. And remember that the podcast is totally free to listen to at any time, but if you want to be able to download it to your regular podcast app, you can do so at our Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Join us next time when we meet an old friend for the first time, visit Cosmo Canyon, and ponder the nature of the universe.